This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Indeed, the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com, the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. Ben Dowsett as joining me on the other side of the table. Ben is associate editor of Salt City Hoops as well as featured contributor on BasketballInsiders.com, bringing the knowledge of the game, the X's and O's, the stats, everything that there is to know about the basketball, plus the cynicism. And pet pe- I was going to say, and as many pet peeves and cynical <laughs> items as possible. Well, I, I, we're happy to have those because if anything, I'm too positive. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today because, again, uh, the Jazz are good. I mean, they're eight and two over their last ten since the All Star break. Uh, you know, we're, the the team is starting to get a lot of national pub about how well they're playing recently. Uh, even with Gordon Hayward out last night, they got a five point win over the New York Knicks, which you know, given the opponent was not the best victory in the world, but you have to credit them for at least pulling that one out. Uh, and, and yeah, so there, there's a lot to talk about today. As always, this is a social show, so, so please uh, let us know your feedback. I've actually got some reader comments, uh, emails, and that sort of thing to read on air uh, later in the show as well, just from what I've gotten in the past week. So uh, be ready for that. And then, as always, if you want to tweet us, you can tweet me at Andy B. Larson is my Twitter handle. At Ben underscore Dowsett is yours. Uh, you can always call into the show, 877-353-0700. You can send us messages by pigeon. I don't know. Like, Just get involved, people, because it's... Technically, you could email us, I suppose. I mean, it, it, I don't know if I check it during the show, but... Well, we got emails from earlier this week, so yeah, like... So, no, I, I was like kind of trying to make a stupid joke. Terrible every, joke. Terrible joke. every possible form of communication is covered here on Salt City Hoops. True. But the Jazz are phenomenal. <laughs> We cover a good team, Ben. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool how quick that's become the case. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's you know it's a twenty-seven win team, twenty-seven and thirty-six Jazz. But again, like I said, eight and two over their last ten, exceeded and, their Vegas win total already. Yeah, with and with nineteen games to spare, like it's all gravy from here. If you if you bet on the Jazz to go over, and I know that you are a hypothetical gambling expert. Uh, did you did you bet on the Jazz hypothetically? I didn't. I didn't. But I did. I mean, we made our season predictions, and I had thirty right along with. Uh, I think Jody and I both had thirty, and you had thirty three. So you're going to be closer. I probably. had 32, thirty two. But well, either way, you're going to be closer than Jody and I. I mean, I still, that, the Jazz would have to go five and fourteen over their last nineteen in order. Like they're going to exceed both of our expectations. Yep, absolutely. It's it's really positive to see. And yeah, there's been there's these last little bit. There's a bit of a. Some of the teams haven't been the greatest, but they've also a couple of the games they've lost have been to those teams, whereas they've beaten. And we'll talk about that in a minute, actually, some of their the discrepancy sometimes between their level of play when they play great teams and when they play lesser teams. Yeah, it's it's been weird because the the last four uh, kind of close games have been against the dregs of the NBA. I also want to say that we've got later on the show coming up is Brett Kriminos, uh, who is the uh, writer for Grantland, writer for Sports on Earth, basketball coach, uh, wrote a really interesting piece on the Jazz's offense and defense since 
Siena's Cantor trade. Uh, so we'll have him on in the 8 o'clock hour at about 8 o'clock in, in case you want to tune into that. So, uh, But let's let's get into what's going well for the Jazz right now. And let's start out with a, 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 another conversation about the Jazz's defense. Because, again, I think we've learned something over this last week, over this road trip where the Jazz went 3-1, and one, um, played one against the Memphis Grizzlies, beat the Sixers and Nets as well, uh, as and obviously beat the Knicks last night. Uh, and you brought up some interesting stats in an article on Salt City Hoops Monday about their wing defense. Correct, yeah, and I, this is something that we've noted and that I think has, is within the public consciousness now locally is that, yes, Rudy Gobert is the largest, both literally and metaphorically, factor in the Jazz's defensive resurgence recently. He's, he's kind of set the tone a little bit, if you will, and we all accept that, but I think people have also realized at the same time that there's a lot more going into this than Rudy. And specifically, the Jazz have been better over since February 1st defensively with Rudy off the floor. Lots of noise because he's playing against starters now and playing against a lot of stars, honestly. So that's you, you can t- take that as it will. But essentially a big part of this is the wing defense, as you mentioned. And I used a few numbers from a site called Vantage Sports. Those who haven't gone and check it out, go do so. It's, it's a really cool platform where... They're trying to essentially track stats that are more descriptive of actual basketball than maybe your box score stats. Yeah, it's, it's almost like as if a scout watched every single game and graded a player out on whether or not he kept in front of a guy or how he did on in pick-and-roll defense and then watched every single game and, and kept track of how often a guy does the right thing on defense or on offense or in rebounding or whatever else. The, yeah. the stats they have are really, really unique. Yeah, and it's, so it's a great resource in terms of that. And, and I've been on there for a while, so I know some of the, the better stats to look at that they've got. And a few of those indicate specifically as far as Elijah Millsap that he's one of the best wing defenders in the NBA currently, specifically hmm. against screens, and we all know how often every offense in the league utilizes screens, especially for wing players. Um, Elijah has the so advantage tracks a stat called points allowed per screen. Pretty simple. Okay. That's not just on-ball screens. That's any time a guy is screened on a given play. And they're actually pretty liberal with that. Like, they will, any screen will be involved, will be tracked in that manner. Okay. He is of, I think, like 192 guys who qualify with 500 or more screens uh, defended, he has the very best points against mar- the lowest points against wow. per screen margin in the entire league. So he's excellent at guarding the on-ball screens, but then also getting around those off-ball screens, kind of like chasing the shooters of, uh-huh. of other teams' offenses, if you will. Absolutely. And so from that measure, he's been excellent. And then the other one who I mentioned in the piece is Dante Exum. And we've known all year that he's showing us a lot more defensively than we had initially thought maybe over the summer after he was drafted. There was a lot of talk he might be a minus. Definitely hasn't been. And specifically... He's really actually taken a major leap since he's been in the starting lineup, which you maybe wouldn't have expected. You would have thought that he would have some trouble playing against elite point guards in the NBA consistently. Hasn't been the case. His That same figure, that points allowed per screen of his, has almost cut in half since the beginning of February from where it was before that, which is that almost correlates with where when he began starting. And that's that number has become one of the better marks in the league as well for wing and guard defenders. So two things make that really interesting to me, really surprising that that happened to me. First of all, when you watch 
Dante Exum highlight films of, of when he was first coming in, he just chilled out on defense, right? Like, in, for example, that Nike World game, he, he's basically just kind of standing there on defense. He, uh-huh. He's not putting in a whole lot of effort um, on the defensive side in order to kind of take over the game on the offensive side. And actually, we've seen the complete opposite in, in a Jazz uniform, which is surprising. And then second of all, we were talking earlier in December and January, and even in, even in December, which, you know, only 30 games in, that maybe Dante would hit or was hitting a rookie wall. I wrote a piece with said, did Dante Exum hit a rookie wall? Right. Like, and yeah, I mean that, and it was like what the second or third most visited, uh, post on Salt City Hoops thanks, ever. Bill Simmons. Uh, yeah. And, and then since then, like he's helping the Jazz so much just by his defensive energy. I mean, you had a stat in your post that when, or I, I think it was maybe even David who had a stat in his post, but th- when Dante Exum's on the floor, the Jazz are something like a plus 13 or a plus 14. Um, over this last month stretch. I think like, that's David's. I, I mean, he's changing the game with how well he's playing defensively as a 19-year-old. It's really remarkable. You, I, I don't think... I mean, you could have seen from his from his pre-draft scouting report, you could have seen that being a bit off and him having, you know, because, you know, we know he's long and we know he's fast. You could have seen him having the raw ability to catch up to guys. And early in the year, we saw that where he would get juked out by a guy, but he'd have so much speed and length that he could be back in the picture by the time they were shooting the ball. Mm-hmm. He still does that, but... The amount that he's improved his footwork and the sort of ice skates thing is a term I like to use a lot. He's not on ice skates nearly as much. He's much more grounded in terms of the motion, the steps he takes, the motions he takes. I mean, he's frustrating some of the best points in the league consistently because they're not fast enough to go by him and they're not. He's way too long for them to shoot over him. And that's, I mean, that's a kind of a lethal combination. And I think most people initially assumed that that combination of speed and length would be more useful offensively. And so far, it's really been the opposite. Yeah, it's been interesting. And I mean, he's had great blocks against uh, Darren Williams in, in the game before last, and then last night against Shane Larkett for a fast break and dunk. Like he's using his length to get turnovers and, and then score the ball on the other end. Exactly, it's been really great. And then another thing the Jazz have done is the the, the three point percentage they're allowing has gone way down. Now you did a little manipulation of some Sport View numbers uh, that I included in my piece as well. This may or may not be some variance here because the Jazz are actually allowing about the same rate of contest on these three pointers, meaning their average defender distance is roughly the same. The number they're allowing that are highly contested, aka defender within four feet, roughly the same during this period. But since the All-Star break, they're allowing under 30% from three. Do you think that that is just variance or is there something that maybe those specific few numbers aren't catching? Maybe the pressure... Yeah, or, or maybe the length of the Jazz's defense, right? Yeah. Because those stats are kind of checking where a guy stands in relation to him. But when a guy like Trey Burke, for example, who has you know alligator arms, um, goes out and, and guards you, it's very different than a Dante Exum experience. Yeah, uh, and I, I'm not sure how much of that sport view is picking up. You know, it, it might be some, it might be all, it might be a little. That would just be my guess. Um, and, and then the Jazz have played some pretty bad shooting teams over the last That's week um, with with the Celtics, with uh, the Sixers, the, the Nets. Nets. The Knicks. I mean, yeah, all these teams can't really shoot that well. Even Memphis isn't a great three-point shooting team. So, uh, you, yeah, I, I mean, I think a little bit of it is just the schedule. Um, and then the last factor is is Rudy Gobert. I mean, let, let's go ahead and, yeah. and acknowledge him. And actually, you asked an interesting question to him, uh, to Quinn Snyder, yeah. about Rudy Gobert last night. Hold on one second. We got that coming. Sometimes, uh, you know, Rudy, Rudy's – I love Rudy. You know, and, and 
but Rudy also is learning, you know, and, and he can't block every shot. And there's times when uh, I think in both those cases, the guys shot the ball quickly. You know, they, they knew he was coming to block a shot, and as a result, you know, it's like a guard shooting a floater over a big guy. And that's basically, you know, Cole Aldridge turned threw a left-handed floater in from 12 feet at the end. It's a heck of a shot. And Rudy can't block that. I don't care, you know, how aggressive he is. So I think, again, you know, Rudy's going to keep getting better. He's got to stay focused on the right stuff. And I don't feel like he's lost concentration in those situations against those two guys. I feel like he's lost concentration at times in pick and roll defense, you know. But those, those situations, I think Rudy's respectful of, of who he's playing against. So for context, that the question I asked him was, well, we've essentially we've seen Rudy shut down your Tim Duncans, your LaMarcus Aldridge's, your Marcus Gasol's of the world in recent weeks. But then there have been a couple aberration games, and last night was partially included, which is why I mentioned it. You heard him mention Cole Aldrich, and another was Tyler Zeller uh, last week, that have had kind of decent games against him and have been able to attack him in the post a little bit, which I think is... It just kind of vis- inherently surprising, right? Yeah, like, you I don't mean, when when you're shutting down the Tim Duncan's of the world, and then all of a sudden you struggle against Cole Aldrich, like that's that's a little bit weird. Yeah, and I think it does speak. To, and this is something I wrote about a few weeks ago as well. Quinn kind of confirmed it last night. One of the things is guys that can shoot quickly, guys that have shots that are really tough to block. Although I think Quinn did miss; he blocked one of those Aldrich hook shots. He actually he, he did. He actually swatted one of those. Out I mean, of the world. Aldrich was still seven for twelve. Yeah, despite no, that. but yeah, but Aldrich had a really nice game, and I think it's guys that. This is an adjustment that Rudy's having to make, and he's done it to a point. We've seen, we saw it against Tim Duncan, where Duncan tried to pump fake him every time, and it just wasn't working. But guys that have a little more trickiness to their game, a little bit more herky jerky stuff every now and then, can have some success against him. But I mean, at this point, at the rate he's developed, I would not bet against him having that all cleared up by what, like next the start of next year. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not. It, it, it's not an issue of the heights that he's reaching because Rudy Gobert changes the game in, in a way that no other defensive player in the NBA does for certain stretches of the game. It's that sometimes the pick-and-roll defense is off and on. Sometimes he's beaten a little bit too easily by some of these lesser centers uh, who can kind of fling shots at the rim and, and get them to go in because that's kind of what they've developed, you yeah. know, um, at, either at the college or, or pro level. Bit, and, a bit. Sometimes he gets beat off the ball as well. We saw it a couple, a couple times last night, a little off-ball cut. Maybe inattentive every once in a while, but again, these are kind of peripheral areas, wouldn't you say? I mean, I, I don't think it is peripheral, but I, I think it's something that can be repaired for like a, a conceivable playoff series. Or yeah. you know, it's I think it's an issue of focus rather than an issue of of skill. Yeah, and and I'm not sure that that focus will be will necessarily. I don't know that lack of focus. I think he'll grow out of. Yeah, I'm definitely not worried about Rudy in any sense. Don't don't I, take I, that from this at all. Yeah. I'm like a little bit worried in that. I I just think that he isn't there yet. And no, he's not. With all the talk, with all the articles, and you know, we've got a, a guest on who's who's written a great article on Rudy Gobert uh, later on on the show. I, I just think that maybe we can do by anointing him too soon. Maybe we're doing him a little bit of a disservice in terms of. Continuing to stay focused on developing his game. That could be true, and you and you definitely got to hope that Quinn and the others in the in the coaching staff and the rest of his teammates continue to to try and motivate him to get better. Um, 
I also think that I, this comes out not only in, in the opponents that Rudy Gobert plays, but how the Jazz overall, I don't think Rudy Gobert is alone in this. So, yeah. I mean, we've seen this over this last 10-game stretch since the All-Star break. The Jazz's worst uh, opponents have been, or sorry, the Jazz's closest games have been against, one, the Lakers, who they lost by three, two, the Celtics, who they lost by one, three, the Sixers, win by five, uh, and then last night, was, or sorry, that was a six-point win against mm-hmm. the Sixers, yeah. and then a five-point win last night against the Knicks. Those are the four worst teams they played in this stretch, and uh, they, you know, they were the closest games. Meanwhile, they beat San Antonio, Portland, Memphis by ten points or more. Yeah, I, I ran a little number on this actually. Since the All Star break, the Jazz have uh, in games versus sub five hundred opponents, which are the ones you just mentioned. The Jazz have outscored their opponents by six points per game. But you do have to factor in that one of those was that win against Denver, which is just a complete dumpster fire, and that was a, <laughs> that was a twenty two point win. You remove that. They've only been outscoring these sub-500 teams by 2.8 points per game. But then, over this same period, against above-500 opponents, of which there have only been four, so it is a small sample, they're outscoring these teams by over 10 points per but, game. Yeah, and I, I'm going to throw out that Denver game because that was literally the game in which the team said, one, two, three, six weeks! Yeah, oh like that, that is not a, a team that was trying out there on the floor. That yeah. was a team that was excited to get its coach fired and then you know think about what they were doing in this offseason. Yeah, it's it. Ugh, that team. I don't even want to talk about that team anymore. <laughs> but any either, even if you leave that win in for the Jazz, they've been better yeah. on a per game basis against their their above five hundred opponents. I mean, they they had they well outplayed both the Spurs and Blazers. They, I mean, it's been those games are super encouraging. But then you have games sort of like last night where yes, you got the win, but there was a little less consistency, and we could see it. Yeah, from Quinn post game that was as stern as I've seen him in a post game since I've been coming to games. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't happy even though the Jazz won, which I think you have to credit him for, right? That's what really great teams do is is not look at whether or not you won or lost a game against an abysmal Knicks team, but whether uh, how you played and whether or not you did the right sort of things to win. And like Quinn said, it was on and off, right? Sometimes they did them, sometimes they didn't. And you know, when you do the small little things to help you win, you you're a good team. The Jazz went on runs; they ended up winning the game. They took it over when it really mattered but for them to leave it up to the last few minutes of that game whether or not shots go in whether or not the referees call fouls etc etc showed uh, maybe a, a little bit of inconsistency from the team yeah and you know Quinn even mentioned it in the presser last night you do have to expect this to a point with a team this young yeah with so they are the guys. youngest team in the league yeah and not even that but the the guys that are playing the largest roles are some of the youngest guys are even yeah. with, within that team like you've got a 19 year old who played 37 minutes last night right like, led the team in minutes if yeah, I'm not mistaken and that was his career high by the way in minutes and and that it, when you factor that in, it's not the worst thing in the world. But, of course, he's right to want to correct it. The more quickly they correct that, the more quickly they're going to potentially rise to contender status by hopefully next year. I, I've got a tweet here from uh, Justin, uh, Justin Lilly-White. He says, ask, what are realistic win-loss expectations for the Jazz to finish the season? Are we a 500 team going forward? Better? So how many, win, how many wins would that require? So they have 27 wins right now. If they were 500 for the rest of, rest of the season, you know, they'd win nine and a half more. So that would put them at 36 or 37, you know, because half okay. wins don't happen. So they'd have to um, go like... 
So if they're a, I, so that's if they're a 500 team going forward. So what would you predict the Jazz to to win? I guess then? I'd have to look at the exact schedule, but I think they can go better than 500 by all means. I, I mean, th- uh, that depends on how quick Hayward gets back. So that's a question, and he is questionable for tonight's, sorry, tomorrow's game against Houston. Uh, and, and then the Jazz's last four is really difficult. They played yeah. uh, all four contenders in the in the West: Portland, Memphis. Uh, Dallas and Houston. Houston. So no, those are very difficult. That's a difficult schedule. But in between now and then, it, it's doable. They have a number of winnable games coming up here before then, though. They've got and most of them are at home. By exactly. The way. They've got they've, so they've got Houston tomorrow night, which especially if they're missing Hayward is going to be real tough. But they've but then they've got Detroit, Charlotte, Washington all at home. Washington's good, but they've also not been world beaters lately. All three of those games are winnable. Then they go to L.A. to play the Lakers. You probably win that game. Right. Then they're in Golden State, so they'll probably lose that game. But then back home from Minnesota and Portland, I mean, they kind of dominated Portland last time. You see them on the schedule and you think loss, but they kind of dominated them last time, so we'll see. That'll be an angry Portland team, though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you still would have to favor Portland in that game, yep. despite whatever happened in, yeah. in, last, and then, in the last matchup. And then Denver twice, Sacramento twice, Minnesota once. Uh, I think they could very easily, but I mean, they'd need to go like 15 and something, right, to actually finish the season above 500. Yeah, so they could go, if they went 14 and 5 over the last 19, then they would be a 500 team. That's going to be tough. That's yeah. even with, but even if everybody's healthy. It's I think possible. It's I mean, they're 8 and 2 over the last 10, right? Yeah, it's not impossible. I, I, I think it's actually, I don't know about 41. I, I could see like 40, 39 happening, and, and, that's a huge jump. I mean, That's I was talking nuts. to um, beat writers from other teams uh, last week before the Jazz went on this road trip. And if you look at the Jazz and they were a 25-win t- team last year, they're going to be more than a 35-win team this year, I, I think. I mean, Probably. if everything goes well, um, then maybe 45 wins the next season competing for a playoff spot. Then, you know, if you kind of take this 10-win season progression, you know, maybe the sky's the limit. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. Now, we wanted to get to Hayward because it will be kind of difficult to do this if he misses. That's any a big more question: games. is if any if any jazz player gets hurt or stays out, then I think this this dream is dead a little bit yeah. just because of how shallow this roster is. But Gordon Hayward was out last night. You know, you were lucky that you had a, a easy Knicks opponent. But one now that, you have the Rockets that, tomorrow. Yeah, one that for some reason didn't want to double team Derek Favors in the post as he repeatedly brutalized them, which I thought was <laughs> kind of questionable in terms of that. But I mean, you look at the numbers season long. I, I pulled these up before we started. The Jazz are almost the Jazz are nine points per one hundred possessions worse offensively when Gordon Hayward leaves the floor for the right. season. So they really are the defense we saw last night. I think we've seen other times when he's not been on the floor. The defense can function quite well without him. He's I don't even know that he's one of their better defensive players right yeah, now. Yeah, I, I it's not the defense that's the worry. It's yeah. the offense, right? And, I mean, Derek Favors stepped up last night. As, as Quinn Snyder called him an anchor, he scored yep. 29 points, 12 rebounds. I mean, that's that's an excellent game no matter who it's against. Um, but then I also thought it was interesting who stepped up last night besides Favors and then who didn't. Yeah. Um, you wrote your piece last night on Rodney Hood and how well he played. He's, he got his career high. Yeah, and he, you know, he could have been more efficient, which I noted. But at the same time, the the role he was willing to take on, they, I mean, at the end of the game, despite Trey Burke or Dante Exum or sometimes both being on the floor, Hood was the one bringing in the Hayward role, bringing the ball up the floor and kind of initiating yeah. the offense from there. He took 16 shots for the night. Yeah, he ended up with his season high. And we actually had a, a little bit of a quote from Quinn. I asked him basically because there was a moment where you could see 
in the vine, there was a vine that somebody made of Quinn really getting on his case uh, on the side about not shooting. If you did, some, yeah. did a little lip reading, you could tell that he wanted. There was some cursing. Yeah, you could tell he wanted Rodney to shoot the bleep ball. And <laughs> so I asked Quinn about that and if he thought that kind of motivated Rodney a little. Here's the quote. You know, Rodney, you, you for, can forget that I don't know how many minutes he's played, but this is like, you know, late November for him, really, in a lot of ways. So he's still finding. I think he's very calm. He's confident, but there's times he's trying to make the right plays, trying to be a good teammate. And for Rodney tonight, being a good teammate was being really aggressive offensively. So, I mean, that's basically what I told him. You know, he, when he drives the ball, he, you know, and, and it happened late. You know, he, he made a couple of really big plays for us, um, and then he missed. But when he misses, he draws guys, and we get we get rebounds. So, um, I just want him to really stay aggressive, and I think he understands that he's. Like all of us, he needs to be reminded. First, first part of that was most interesting to me is that we have to remember that because of his injuries, this is like still early season for a rookie. Then to see him make that kind of progression, just in a, even for a single game sample last night, I was really pleased with it. it. I think it says wonders about his his confidence in himself as a player. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I thought he played well. He, you know, again wasn't the most efficient, but for him to step up in that role um, and, and make a couple important plays. Um, even though he did overpass it, you understand how and why that happened. I thought he played well last night. Yeah. Then, without Gordon Hayward in the lineup, they moved Trey Burke into the starting lineup, uh, and he was he was poor. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's played well since moving to the bench, uh, but shooting thirty seven percent, thirty three percent from three, sixty five percent from the free throw line, which his, is weird because his, he was ninety percent last season. Yeah, his overall season numbers from the line have gone way down, and I don't get it at all. He's down like 14% from last year or something like that from the free throw line. It's it's kind of startling. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think last year may have been too high, if that yeah, makes sense. That may have true. been an aberration on the high side. But still, for him to be shooting as poorly as he uh, and then last night, what was he, 1 for 12, I believe? Uh, yeah, or 1 for 11, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Okay. Um, the team has been better since they moved him to the bench. Like it's working more as a team concept rather than it lineups involving him getting badly outscored while he's on the floor. <laughs> lineups involving him are outscoring the opponents, which is good. But his own play has been kind of inconsistent. There have been games where we've thought he's been great. I've noted he's done better things with the floater, but you do you worry a bit when you see games like last night. Agreed. Yeah, it was an opportunity for him to step up, be a leader, uh, use those possessions that Gordon Hayward has, and instead he didn't only score. Wearing five last night, only two assists in 28 minutes. That's not a great performance. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we're going to talk about another thing that happened during last night's game, uh, the Derek Fisher booing scandal. This is something people have been asking us on Twitter to talk about, where we fall on this, whether or not Jazz fans should be booing Derek Fisher for what happened during his time in Utah. That's coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. My name is Andy Larson, Ben Dowson on the other side. Apparently we were having some audio issues er- earlier, so just a little bit edgy off that was in that previous segment. Now we should have them fixed. Let's, let's hope for the You're best. You're an edgy guy, Andy. It's I, am, right. I am on edge. Uh, and, and my voice is a little bit weird anyway. It's not the great <laughs> Bill Riley voice. You know, like, it, I'm, I'm not the classic radio sound but I, I think any of us has a bill riley voice no i mean you you gotta go with bill riley or craig bowler jack they just have amazing voices yeah. and we're we're sadly not them unfortunately oh, well. but we do have points of view 
and we have very different points of view on this Derek Fisher thing. This is something we talked about yesterday and was featured in the New York Post um, because that particular tabloid is struggling with things to write about regarding this New York Knicks team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with all the losses, they're, what, 12-51 and 51 now? Um, yeah, that that's, doesn't give you a lot to write about. So when Derek Fisher was booed for about five seconds as he was introduced as the head coach of the New York Knicks last night, they figured that would be a great thing to write about. Let's bring up this whole thing about jazz fans booing Derek Fisher again. He's but a jerk, and I hate him. Exactly. People on this program have strong feelings about it. I, I mean, I'm. Let's let's hear your point of view first because okay. I, I I think mine will play better off if it's second. Maybe I just want to win this argument. Okay, I'll, I'll, I don't even mind. I'll go first. Um, <clears throat> here's my thing. <sighs> I find that the the okay we have to look <laughs> at what we are essentially by booing him. Now I'm not saying that booing a person necessarily a player or a coach is necessarily bad. If they the, if it's not like you're insulting their livelihood and their and maybe you are is, a little bit. It is a negative <laughs> it is a negative social connotation. No no question about that. And somebody made the point to me on Twitter last night that we boo referees. I find that to be yeah. completely different. We boo referees and they know exactly why we're booing them because we're booing we we have a bias towards the team we care about. We're not exactly. We're not booing them because we're we're we find something wrong with something they've done personally, which is exactly what we're booing for for Der- for someone like Derek Fisher. But more importantly is I think you have to look at what we are effectively by booing him accusing him of doing which is I'm gonna lay it out we are accusing Derek Fisher a person who before he came to Utah by the way I will note completed two full NBA contracts in two very different cities dutifully and without any complaint whatsoever and was considered a good teammate and a, and all that stuff and I'll throw after did not know, complete some NBA about contracts after, I know about after and okay. I'm, I'm gonna get to that okay, but okay. We are accusing Derek Fisher of either fabricating and or exaggerating the needs of his 11-month-year-old daughter's cancer treatment so that he could get out of his con- – a multimillionaire could get out of his contract, leave $8 million on the table, and go play in a better climate. That's what we're accusing. And for a better team. A, and for a better team, sure. That's what we're accusing a person of. And now, tell me if I'm not mistaken, he had already won championships before this, yes. correct? So this is a, I think he had three already, right, from the Lakers? Yes. Was it, was uh, there it was for two or three. three. Two or three. Either way, multi-time champion, so it wasn't like he was you know, needed to chase a ring necessarily or anything like that. And to me, when we know as little as we actually know about his daughter's medical situation, which when you break it down, we don't know that much. We know the things that we've read on rumors on the internet. Not necessarily always rumors. Some of them, we know what her condition is and things like that. But we don't know the intimate details of this at all. And to claim that we did, in my opinion, would be ridiculous. But if you ask me, leaping to the assumptions that we're leaping to about this person... Over something that sensitive is kind of ridiculous without knowing the full details of the situation. You, Ben, are arguing logically. I know. It's it's crazy that I do (laughs) that. That's not what booing is all about, right? Still holding a grudge about that? Booing is about the emotional fandom uh, the the craziness that that's involved in being a fan like if we if we stop for a second and think about how stupid it is that we spend most of our lives uh, or at least a large portion of our lives caring about these multimillionaires playing a, a 
game against each other. Like, it's it's crazy. Like, being a sports fan is almost by definition insane. So that's not how the fans who boo Derek Fisher are looking at it. They are looking at it as Derek Fisher was traded to the Jazz, said nothing for a week, was pretty clearly not happy to be traded to to Utah. Um, made the best of the situation, made this great return in the playoffs, was a playoff hero, no doubt. Him leaving the Jazz made the Jazz better financially and probably on the floor. But for him to be to leave the Utah Jazz, become a Los Angeles Laker, uh, again, and I can't... Uh, we make fun of the Lakers now, right? But back when Derek Fisher left the Jazz, that there was real hatred between Jazz fans and the Lakers. Oh, yeah. The Lakers had just kicked the Jazz out of the playoffs three straight times. So there's there are real problems with that in, in the mind of a Jazz fan. And so now... And then all of a sudden, we also learned that Derek Fisher's daughter's treatments are still happening in New York City, not in Los Angeles. So in some sense... Uh, it's not that all for his daughter, and, and maybe, and, and maybe it is. And you're, you're right; we don't know enough about the situation to know. Um, but it's also it, it feels like a slight against Utah. It feels like a slight against like the Huntsman Cancer Institute, which which is universally renowned as one of the best cancer institutes. It, it feels like Derek Fisher left the Jazz, and to use um, John Midget's point of view on SLC Dunk, then joined the hot Southern California girlfriend. Um, boyfriend, whatever, to to just go play and have a good time in in Laguna Beach or something. Like I don't know. You're you're arguing logically, and I see it. Like yeah, we don't know enough about Derek Fisher's situation. But being a fan is not about acting logically. It's about acting emotionally. And and there's this tribalism that jazz fans love the jazz. A guy left to go to the enemy could have stayed here, chose otherwise, regardless of what the reasons, he deserves to be booed. I, but I see, I'm just, I, I, I totally understand the whole fan thing, being maniacal as a fan, but to, I also, you know, I, I, I came up playing hockey, and there's a, there's a big, a, a large uh, side of hockey that's, that class is really, re- thought really highly of. Class is a big thing. You win in a classy format, you lose in a classy format. I wish I exemplified this myself when I played hockey, <laughs> but I don't. But... <clears throat> The, the to me it just reeks of a lack of class because it's a, a, a it's people who are unwilling unable because we don't know the details to find out the actual information regarding the the situation no but and, like and, you're expecting guys to go like do some like freedom of information act stuff no, on no, no. Derek all, Fisher's all daughter I ex- and like I, I, I like all it's I ex- not about that it's just like that guy not on team anymore boo see I'm, but all I all I actually expect is that if you're going to because again in my opinion by booing what we are doing is accusing him of fabricating or lying about his daughter's cancer so that he could leave this place I'm just uncomfortable right now and if, yeah if you're accusing a person of doing that in my opinion you should know everything about that <laughs> yeah. situation before you're going to because I think that's frankly I think that's a horrendous accusation about a human being whether or not you think that, I know there was stuff later on with Fisher that with Dallas and some stuff again totally unsubstantiated all we've got is some really cryptic quotes from the most grudgeworthy and and NBA owner in history in Mark Cuban so I don't know how we take those seriously necessarily and, me, did, and it happened in Houston again, too, right? There was, yeah, but again, we don't know the, and then all of this is without getting into it at all, the the idea of 
other people seeing this, other people in the league, and we're a team that's talking about trying to bring free agents over this summer. I'm not saying this is like the end-all, be-all factor of this or anything like that. or that guys. Are I don't gonna... even think it's a factor. I, see, like, I disagree. No free agent is going to be like, well, you're giving me $73 million, but you do boo Derek Fisher, so I'm out. Like That's not how people make decisions. But if it's close... And for guys that are already multimillionaires, and if you got, you know, some close to max guy that you're trying to bring in or something like that, and he's choosing between a few details for the situation that he's going for, I absolutely think there's a chance that he's at least a factor in his head could be look at the way these guys treat every former player that ever leaves this team. And I'm now, I'm not only talking about this individual situation. Jazz fans, unfortunately, have a bit of a reputation. There was some, the year after Fisher, there were some racist things that were potentially. What? You didn't see those rumors? There was, and again, I'm, I'm not saying those were for sure necessarily, but it was in a game against Philadelphia. Multiple Philadelphia players commented that they had racist slurs yelled at them by Jazz fans. I, I just think that if you're talking about the reputation of a place in general, it's. I think it's a factor. It may not be a huge one, but I think it's a factor, and I, I think that it's really unfortunate that especially over something that, again, I consider to basically be a horrendous accusation of a person for something we don't really know whether he did it or not. I just think it's wrong, and I'm not – from a a class and a dignity standpoint, I'm not really okay with it. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's fine. John Midget, who I just referenced his argument, uh, chiming in, saying it would be wonderful if if fans stopped booing Derek Fisher – just like it would be wonderful if Congress would stop fighting once in a while. Like, He's probably right. These it's not are happen. things that uh, I agree. Like it would probably be best for all parties if the jazz fan, if jazz fans just stopped booing Derek Fisher. But you understand that it's an emotional game that fans are are uh, emotionally involved with their team, and, and to some extent, they have a right to do whatever they want. I, 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 that last part, I don't agree with at all. I mean, maybe not whatever they want, but like uh, booing in the end is relatively harmless, right? Relatively, again, to me, it's just the implication of what you're booing about, what you're implying that a person did by booing them. Because other than that, the guy only did good stuff for Utah. And as you no, mentioned, I mean, although he I shot thirty eight percent, let's but, let's. He, he was well, and as you mentioned before, his player. departure was actually probably a good thing for the team, right? Which which I actually don't think is a huge factor. But when you if you're looking at it from a results standpoint, it kind of was. Yeah. So anyway, we I think we've gone our our, our pieces <laughs> there. But I I just and I will admit a lot of it is because I hold things like class and dignity in sports up on a pretty high level myself. That's why you play hockey the way you do. Oh God. I'm, I'm the <laughs> biggest hypocrite in the world when I'm on the ice. It's ridiculous. <laughs> no, I mean I I just think it's it's. I, I don't know. I, I hate being put in this position because you're right. Like it's uh, on its face a, a pretty terrible thing to boo Derek Fisher for for what happened with Utah. But I also just feel like those fans have some say and aren't voting with logic. They're voting with emotion, and really gets to the core of what sports is about. Is is about sometimes those human emotions that aren't necessarily logical. Yeah, and most of the time that's fine. Like, you want to boo LeBron because he spurned Ohio, go ahead. But when <laughs> it's when you're talking about cancer and your family and things like that, I think you reach a new level. Anyway. Fair enough. No, I, th- I think that's fair. All right, well, we've got maybe... We'll swing from one side to the other. We just talked about Derek Fisher's booing. Next up, we'll talk about the NBA's new salary cap rules coming in uh, after this next offseason and how it's going to change the free art agency market this offseason as the Jazz have a lot of cap space to use who could they go after what how will it change how much they'll have to pay we'll talk about that next on the salt city hoop show espn 700 talking hoops and the association this is salt city hoops on espn 700
All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show. We've got some tweets to read on air, including from loved ones of, of Mr. Ben Dowsett. Yeah, Laura Ann Sipos, my lovely girlfriend, said, <laughs> uh, I don't think they were all booing Derek Fisher. I think one person was booing him, and everybody else was booing that one guy. So that's a new perspective on that. Thank you, Laura. You know, we, we always like to get new perspectives on the show. Um, I, I, I think John's, uh, John Midget's point, again, again, tweeting on that same topic, uh, fan emotion isn't based on logic, and so it's not going to change because of logic either. Yeah, I and I know that. I know that I'm fighting the lost cause on this and that they're going to boo that guy every time he comes in. I know. Also from um, our first segment on the Jazz's defense, Clint Peterson chimes in, the Jazz's D rating has risen nine spots in just ten games. This just doesn't happen this late into a season. It's a remarkable rise. The Jazz's D rating rise is even faster than Ben can talk. I know, hard to believe. It's very, very hard to believe, but he's absolutely right. He's, <laughs> they, they, it's been incredible. And he's he, the part he's most right about is that's extremely rare to see this late. And to, to be able to have that kind of a rise, you have to really, really be killing teams. Plus, you have to have been really bad earlier, which they were. Yeah, I, I ran some numbers today. And in order for the Jazz to finish with an above-average defense, they only have to go with an 103 or better D rating for the rest of the year. Um, that's really plausible, and in fact, will probably happen. I would say it's likely at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had one more also from James Hansen. Oh yeah, uh, go ahead. remember that this is a sport that made people wonder if Brandon Knight was dead after a DeAndre Jordan dunk, <laughs> which is true. That that was literally like the first joke I saw a bunch of times on right. Twitter was, and that gets made all the time. I know logic isn't a thing for in this. So, but I. But we're logic. This is a Salt City Hoop show. Like yeah. if we are, we are logical people. Except just I, I've been a fan for too long that I, I just want to defend the fans here. It's true. Anyway, um, let's talk about a piece of news that came up in the league today. Made The NBA made an announcement that the cap-smoothing proposal that they uh, sent out to the NBA Players Union has been turned down by said Players Union. So uh, it looks like we won't have any salary cap-smoothing. Now, what that proposal would have done is raised the salary cap a little bit this offseason um, and a little bit less next offseason so that you would kind of have a, a, a guess smoother jump if you will, from um, now to when the new TV money comes in and therefore the salary cap is raised. Instead, that's all going to happen all next offseason. So not the summer of 2015, but the salary cap will jump to almost $90 million uh, in the summer of 2016, meaning that every NBA team will have salary cap money. You know, even the the Nets, the Knicks, everyone you can think of uh, who has paid any money at all will have gigantic salary cap space money in the, in the summer of 2016. How does that change what the Utah Jazz do this offseason? Um, well, I think we've talked about it before, is that now is the time to overpay somebody if you're going to. Like, if you're going to do it, now's the right time because a max contract this year all of a sudden is nowhere close to a max contract next summer. And so we, I made a list of guys that at least plausibly might end up getting, and some of them are definitely getting, max contracts. So Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, definitely. Marcus Gasol, definitely. Kevin Love, definitely. DeAndre Jordan, almost definitely. Paul Millsap, probably. DeAndre Jordan, definitely. Yep. Paul Millsap, if he wants it, definitely. definitely. Uh, Al Jefferson was an interesting one. Hmm. He's a free agent this year. He's a bit old. I think he maybe comes a bit short. Uh, Draymond Green, definitely. Who would you rather have, Ennis Cantor or Al Jefferson for the next four years? <sighs> oh, God. <laughs> I, I'm going to say Cantor only because he's so much younger yeah, and there's I so think, much less injury risk. I think that's my <clears throat> answer as well. Yeah. Uh, Draymond Green definitely gets one. Chris yep. Middleton might get one. I think he does. Wesley I, Matthews almost for sure would have and still might um, after his injury. And then here's one, Cantor. 
Cantor yeah. might get a max deal this off offseason from Oklahoma City, or maybe even someone else. You never know. I mean, you look at it, and there half the league has maximum salary space. So even though we named a lot of guys there, there are a lot of teams who are able to give that money. And given that that money will almost be worthless next offseason, there's no reason to keep it right exactly. later. So I, I think that really changes what the market is for these free agents. And you could see it bump up to where, you know, you get really kind of shake your head sort of contracts for some of these guys like an Ennis Cantor, like uh, Chris Middleton, like a Wesley Matthews, guys who aren't really, you know, number one offensive players, guys who you think of as max salary guys, but are going to be getting the max salary because teams have to spend it now or else it's not good for anything next season. Yeah, move it or lose it, if you will. Yeah, even if you use it this offseason, you can use it again next offseason if you become a contending team and, and become a, a team that free agents want to sign for. Yeah, exactly. Now, what I'm most interested to see is how is not actually this summer. It's actually the following one because it always takes a few years within a new system like this for team. Now, the smartest teams like the Spurs and and those types of guys are always ahead of the curve, but it takes a little while for the league to kind of realize the inefficiencies within the new system and kind of begin exploiting them. And I'm really interested to see how that happens this time. And, of course, the major inefficiency is what we're talking about is getting a guy before this who has a contract that stretches into this. The Jazz have probably already done this with Derek Favors. The Jazz are going to have Favors for three more years after this one at $12 million a year roughly, right. and that's a huge win if he continues developing at the rate he is right now because two of those years are going to be under that fat salary cap. As well as the, the players who are in the in their rookie sale, scale contracts, yeah. like Dante Axum and Rudy Gobert, Rodney Hood, those guys are tremendous value, even more so after this change happens because of those rally, rookie salary contracts staying much lower compared to the rest of the league, uh, as well as minimum guys have less money than, yeah. than the rest of the league. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see how this changes roster makeup. Uh, I also think it's interesting. We could see a lot of guys only taking one-year deals Mm -hmm. this year so that they do have um, their free agency when every team has money and you could get big money offers from like the Lakers, the Knicks, the the big market teams. Would you toss a big one-year offer at some, you know, some bigger-ish star if he said, sorry, there's a very good chance I'm leaving after this year, but I'll come try it out for a one-year? Yeah, but I mean, if you say like Paul Millsap, sign him to a one-year deal, say, hey, if you like it here, if you want to stay here, great. Uh, if not, then I mean, at least we've made our team better in the short term. Yeah, could be an avenue for them to take. It's really, it's going to be really interesting to see. But I think the Jazz are in just the right position with how it's going to work out. Agreed. All right. Well, on the next segment of the Salt City Hoop Show, we've got Brett Caraminos joining us uh, from Grantland Sports on Earth to talk about Rudy Gobert and Ennis Cantor. This is the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. So we've got Brett Corraminis um, on the show. He wrote an interesting article for Sports on Earth this week uh, about how the Jazz have been playing since the Ennis Cantor trade with Rudy Gobert at center, Derek Favors at the four, how the Jazz's offense and defense has been working together with that. So wanted to have him on the show this week to have him explain a little bit of what he's seen since the trade deadline. So, Brett, are you there? I am. Well, it's, it's good to hear you, and then thanks again for joining us on the show. Hey, no problem. I had fun uh, chatting with you guys, uh, I think, on the podcast earlier this year. So I was uh, happy to get back. You guys do a heck of a job covering the team. And we pronounced your name right this time, right? We got it right? You did. Awesome. You did. 
Awesome. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you clarifying that for us. So, yeah, as we've been kind of talking about not only just today, but for a, a few weeks, at this point, everybody knows that when the Jazz have Derek Favors and, and Rudy Gobert on the floor together, it's really hard to score on them. But what hasn't been discussed quite as much is how the Jazz are getting by offensively during these situations because you got to be able to do that. You still have to be able to score points. And your article on Sports on Earth yesterday really kind of touched in, get went into a deep level on that. You want to give us kind of the broad strokes of that, of some of the stuff they're able to do to be able to survive offensively? Well, uh, I mean, you know, I think, you know, as you guys know and, and fans have probably seen, you know, as the league has evolved uh, with these offenses, you know, shooting has become – uh, more prevalent, you know, at every position, you know, the Hawks basically can play with five guys at times that can spread the floor to the three point line. It opens up huge driving gaps for offense. So, you know, the Jazz are a little bit more traditional, obviously, with, with Favors and Gobert. And so to create those lanes that they need for guys to have success, um, you kind of got to move the pieces on the chessboard around a little bit differently. And, and what those guys, uh, what their strengths are as, as, as basketball players when they're in the pick and roll is, you know, some guys like Mark Gasol are great in that short roll situation where they, you know, set the high screen and roll to about the free throw line and they'll hit that little jumper. DeMarcus Cousins is really good at that as well. Um, but both Favors and Gobert are best catching, taking a step, and trying to finish uh, around near the basket. And so it, what they, the Jazz have done is they've just, yeah, used. Um, I think we talked about this on Twitter the other day, and, and I guess I was corrected. NBA terminology is crazy, but it is referred to as shorting. I call it circle under. Um, there may be other coaches in the NBA or college that call it like seven other things. That's just what terminology is like yeah. in basketball. Um, but the the essential premise is, is what they do is that when you watch a team, um, you know, like let's say the Rockets play, they have a bunch of shooters around a dive man. And that, that big guy will roll through the lane. He'll get tagged, which is the help defender coming in off a perimeter shooter, kind of touch him in the lane to, to basically, you know, thwart a pass and try to stop passes to come through. And then those guys recover out to shooters. And then the idea is, is that teams can throw back to those shooters while the help defenders are tagging and get wide open shots or get guys having to run out at them. And then they can, they can catch and go downhill towards the basket. And, the Jazz can't do that with a non-shooting big man like Favors or Gobert if the roles are reversed um, because what will happen is the defender guarding them on the weak side of the floor will just step up, they'll block the guy rolling to the basket, and then no good shot comes from them being open, whether it's you know higher up on the floor in the short corner or wherever. So what they do is they pull that big guy into the driving lane of the ball handler. So the ball handler actually has no room to really get to the rim because there's the uh, – the original defender that's in the pick and roll, that big guy, and then the two other ones that are circling around in front of him. But what that does is it allows, you know, Gobert, like we saw in the video of the, of the post, can just go roll right down the lane. He's only going to have one other health defender there, and he can catch and he can do his thing, which is finish and dunk around the rim. Favors can do the same thing. Um, it's something that you saw with the Phoenix Suns when they had uh, Rob and Amari Stoudemire together. Um, and it, it's worked, you know, well for them. It makes passable offense, especially when that team is forced into pick and roll, as teams in the NBA are a lot nowadays. 
So, uh, and and I really appreciate it. I think that's something that you added to that discussion. I, I don't think that was out there, at least nationally, before now. I want to turn a little bit to the defense, and obviously that's been the league's best since since the deadline. How much of that defensive progress that we've seen from the Jazz, and you know, remember they were the worst defensive team in the league last year uh, and, and second worst for the early part of this season, how much of that progress is Rudy Gobert playing more minutes, getting in the starting lineup, et cetera, and how much of it is his teammates around him playing a lot better than they had earlier in the season? Well, I, I think I saw something uh, pass along on the Twitter timeline the other day. Uh, I think one of you guys wrote about um, the perimeter defenders, and, and that's a part that I didn't get into. I mean, obviously, uh, fortunate writing, you only have said number of word counts, and, um, you know, if you go, you can go on forever about defensive stuff, but um, a big part of it, too, is Dante Exum, I think, at the point guard position. Um, obviously, he's still a young kid. He, he isn't really physically there, but he's so long for that position. He causes so many problems with his length. He works hard on that end of the floor, um, and, and his presence can be felt with that initial, you know, at that initial point of attack. And, and a big thing with guys that when it comes to defense, and, and so much of it is, is basically defense is almost synonymous nowadays with pick-and-roll defense, and with that, you need your on-ball defenders to be able to funnel guys into the right coverage. Um, you know, teams can employ as many as five or six different pick-and-roll coverages in a game. Uh, so knowing where to send guys, making sure that they're not getting beat the opposite direction of where they're expecting the help from. Um, and Exum's length and just his work rate on that end of the floor has been a huge boost. Um, Elijah Millsap has actually helped in that regard. He's one of those UAB guys, and you know, for a while, kind of starting with Mike Anderson, then follow up with Mike Davis. Those teams kind of made their name by just playing hard and defending the heck out of you. Um, and he came into the fold, and, I, and while he's been kind of an offensive, uh, you know, liability at times, he does play really hard. He's got a good physical presence on the wing. Um, you know, probably an upgrade over Alec Burks, um, who's out with a shoulder injury. And, and that has kind of helped solidify everything. Um, you know, you add two even just marginal defenders um, on the perimeter with, you know, two great front court big men like that. And even when they go to the bench of Trevor Booker, you got a really mobile foreman that can move around a lot, that can show out a little bit sometimes on pick and rolls if they need them to, um, and then rotate real hard and fast in the back. Um, all that stuff kind of has combined together to just help them build a really good defensive foundation over these last, uh, you know, 10-plus games. Yeah, that the piece that you referenced did happen to be mine, actually, and it was, uh, we actually, we both wrote on the same day. Mine came out yesterday as well, and so they actually complemented each other kind of well, and it was one of the things I saw, I don't know if you use these very often. Do you use Vantage metrics at all? Do you, do you know about that? Uh, I do not actually. Okay, so curious. it's like a it's a you should go check the site out. It's vantagesports.com. They have uh, original content that's produced there. I, I write for them every once in a while and they're it's it's essentially as Andy described it before, it's almost a way that that's that it's almost as if scouts could watch every game and compile certain types of statistics that are way more useful for gauging what guys are actually doing on the floor. So defensively, for example, they've got like a keep in front percentage statistic of, you know, the percentage a guy keeps his man in front of him. They've got a, a percentage of points allowed per screen, things like that. And, and your points that you just made were basically spot on with the research that I did through those numbers, which is that Millsap especially has been, has graded out as one of the best perimeter defenders in the entire league as far as getting through screens. And you, you yourself noted it's a pick and 
roll league. You have to be able to deal with multiple screens on every possession. In fact, his points allowed per screen is very lowest of qualified wings in the entire league. And Exum's improvement has been major in that area over the last few months as well. We kind of thought he may have hit a rookie wall earlier in the year, and that just doesn't seem to be the case here at all. But I think your larger overall point was that, especially as far as funneling guys to the right areas and things like that, is that that's... A lot of that goes back to knowledge, and a lot of that goes back to the coach. This is Quinn Snyder's first year in coaching, and I, I will transition here just a little into that. W- what are your thoughts generally on the job he's done? I mean, it's pretty much a, a party around here for him, that which is not surprising. He's done an excellent job. It, does it look the same kind of from the outside? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're entering uh, what might be a golden age of coaches, and he, he's definitely going to be one of those guys that, is really making an impact. You see a lot of that Spurs influence that he had with the Toros um, into what you guys are doing down in Utah. Um, you know, as I wrote about just very briefly, you know, you guys are strong on the offensive end of the floor. That's been a Utah staple forever. Um, you know, and then the defensive stuff, just that conservative, more conservative scheme, trying to drop bigs back, you know, closer to the basket and pick and roll. Um, and just the ball movement has been outstanding. Um, and you've seen great years for, you know, Gordon Hayward and, and Favors has played really well. And, um, you know, the team looks more balanced and, and Gobert's development has been phenomenal. Um, you know, it started, you know, when he played for France, obviously, you know, this, this summer and fall, but it's really carried through the NBA season. Like you mentioned before, I thought Dante Exman has definitely looked better on the defensive end of the floor. And like you said, I mean, that, that's a big part of the coach's job is to assimilate information to his players and get them to understand, you know, it's not, as, not what he knows, it's what they end up being able to take out on the court with them that matters. And, you know, when you see a young guy like that make those strides and you see Gobert get better, when you see Exum get better, when you see Favors get better and Hayward, you know, there's a lot of people that are involved in that process of making those guys better. Um, but, you know, for a head coach like him, he's going to get a lion's share of the credit, and he probably should. I mean, he's putting guys in great spots to succeed, and that's really the, a head coach's job at any level. Absolutely. Put your players in a spot to be successful, um, and then you're doing your job. No question. I got a little hypothetical for you that I asked Andy uh, in between segments here just a second ago. In a vacuum, just your all other things equal, uh, coach of the future, Quinn Snyder or Brad Stevens? Oh man, it's tough. I know it's not an easy question. I, you know, honestly, I've always been partial to Brad. Uh, I, 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 I was lucky enough to go down when he was at Butler and watch their practices for a week, and um, he is just such, such a sharp guy. And, and I'm sure if I if I would have the ability to go watch uh, Quinn Schneider do work, um, I would be equally as impressed. But um, you know, it's hard to put it back. I mean, like you said, it's a very difficult choice. They're both doing great jobs with teams that nobody really expected much from. I think Utah's now closing in on 30 wins already. I think Vegas had them at, at 23 to start the year. And, um, you know, the Celtics are one game out of, you know, it's the Eastern Conference playoffs and all those final seeds aren't doing, aren't doing too well. But he's got one game out of the playoff run and he's had, you know, a, a bunch of, of cast-offs and flawed guys, talent that come through his door. And um, they're both really impressive with what they've done. It's almost impossible. I don't think you can really go go wrong with the choice. 
Now, Brett, you recently had an article on Utah Utes basketball as well, and you know this station here, ESPN 700, is the home of the Utes. So for our listeners, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on Coach K, Larry Kruskoyak, and uh, how DeLon Wright's played this year. Uh, I, I really enjoyed watching DeLon Wright play. Uh, I mean, he was uh, – it's, it's so rare, you know, nowadays – um, you know, being part of uh, the industry more and more, you, you get a, a sense of how everything gets connected. And with a lot of kids that come into college, and especially the ones that like him that go in the JUCO route, there's a lot of incentive to do things that bring attention out of yourself. And that's more of, you know, getting points, getting rebounds, filling up the stat sheet. And the thing that I really enjoyed about watching the line right play when I was researching for that piece was, what an unselfish kid he was when I talked to people within their, uh, within that program, the same thing, great kid, unselfish, quiet, humble, all that, all those things that we like to associate with our athletes came out about it. And, you know, that just tells me, you know, that it's a kid that's, that's doing things for the right reason that wants to win, that wants to see the guy next to him get better. Um, and that's a huge boost for a, a program. And, and Coach Kostoviak said as much to me when I talked to him about it. Um, and, you know, he's, a, he's another guy that – and this is something I think uh, – I think it was Seth Davis might have wrote about it, about, you know, the NBA influence in the college game and, and that being a, a, uh, a possibility to improve the offensive flow that, that, that has been a problem at that level. And, you know, you got a guy, if you watch what they do on the offensive end of the floor – um, they execute really re- well. They run a lot of NBA level sets, um, you know, pistol stuff, flex stuff, um, you know, everything. A lot of pick and roll basketball with great spacing, and you know that that's a huge advantage there because you you have this weird cross section in college. If you have guys that come down from the highest level of the game, and a lot of guys that grew up under the old school kind of Bobby Knight motion, you know, five players just kind of moving for the sake of moving. And in the NBA, you know, it's not that it's inherently better, but with the amount of money that's in there, with the competitiveness to that level, and with stuff like the playoffs where you gotta, you got to play a team sometimes seven straight times in a row, it really hones, you know, your level of, of thinking and how you execute and the things that you have to do and, and the skill of the players just makes that level so much harder to coach at. Um, and so when you take a guy down and you move him down a little bit level of Division One college, and he puts in those same concepts and that same style of teaching, um, it's just a, a huge boost to any program. Because, um, again, I think, you know, a guy like Larry Kristoviak, just it's the old NBA model, which I just said before. It's about putting guys in spots to be successful. And if you can do that with college kids that, um, you know, have a lot more flawed games, um, you're going to have a, a great success down there, and they're having it this year. Definitely. Now I'm going to put you on the spot before we got to let you go here. I've been, and now I admit, I definitely have not watched as much Utes basketball as I'm sure you have, or most people around here. I'm mostly an NBA only guy, but I have cast my doubts on my Twitter about their ability to actually reach the final four this year based on the games I have watched. Where, how do you think this team will do in the tournament? Do you think they could be realistically be a final four team? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, they, they definitely defend well enough uh, to give themselves a, a chance, um, you know, to get there. You know, it's all going to depend. I mean, again, you're talking about 18 to 22-year-old kids. So, <laughs> I mean, you never know what you're going to get, it, especially yeah. on that stage and that limelight. I mean, they could have a meltdown or a team. They could play Kentucky, and Kentucky can melt down on that stage. So you never really know in that aspect. But, you know, I definitely think with, 
with the strong uh, defensive chops that they have, any team that can defend at that level is always going to have a chance to advance. Um, you know, they have a guy, you know, I think you do need a guy that plays well with the ball in his hands because so much of the college game late in those crunch time possessions just devolves into do you have a kid that can break down a defense and get a shot for himself, you know, when everything else is kind of going to hell. And I really think that with those two combinations, they certainly have the ability, but it's probably going to depend on, depend on who's in the bracket and, you know, if they can avoid that, those collapsing stretches of four or five minutes sometimes just completely undo a team at that uh, stage. Well, Brett, thank you so much for giving your opinion on that. And, of course, the Utah Jazz. We appreciate your article. Where can we check out your stuff on Twitter and online? Uh, well, you can uh, – I've written for Grantland and, and Real GM and Sports on Earth. And, uh, I mean, my Twitter handle is is at Menace, which is my, my long Greek last name. But uh, – <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you guys want to filter around there and look at my stuff, that's great. At least I know somebody's reading it. <laughs> hey, well, I'm definitely reading it. It's good stuff, it. yeah. All right, Brett, well, thanks so much for joining us. That's Brett Kermanis from all those different sites you just mentioned, Grantland, Sports on Earth, et cetera. Thanks again. All right, so we've got a couple minutes here uh, to talk about the playoff race. And, and actually, this game right now on ESPN changes a lot with this playoff race, that the Clippers currently beating uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder by 15 with nine minutes left to go. I, I'm curious. I just kind of want to break it down, first of all, where we are right now in the playoff standing. So we've got uh, in the Western Conference, the top seven seeds are definitely settled. You know, we're, yeah. we're looking at not necessarily in position, but these seven teams are definitely making the playoffs. The Warriors, Memphis, Houston, uh, Portland, Los Angeles, the Clippers, San Antonio Spurs, and Dallas Mavericks. Then there's a three-way fight for that last spot, although it's becoming more of a two-way fight between Oklahoma City and New Orleans. Those teams are tied um, on, on paper, one's 35 and 28, one's 36 and 29, though the, the Thunder would be a half a game behind if they do indeed lose this game. But as are they the like one with, they will. Sorry, are they the one with 29 losses right now? Or they have 28 losses. So they'll, the Thunder they'll be tied in the loss column after this game, assuming Correct. that Oklahoma City does the Pelicans doesn't... will have one more win. Okay. Um, and, and then, of course, you go down Phoenix, Utah, Denver, etc. Um, then on the eastern side, it's really interesting. Indiana has actually made a run, late run into the, the into the playoffs. They're now the seventh seed. They're actually the only team in the league who's played better than the Jazz over the last ten. They're nine and one over the last ten. They've really put the defense together and have yet to add Paul George, which is kind of scary. Yeah. Uh, and then beyond that, they've got Charlotte at the eight seed. You've got Miami a half a game behind them. Boston's only two games back, and then Brooklyn's actually three games back, although they're faltering. They've lost their last four. Uh, basically, the playoff races in both conferences are, are heating up for those last playoff spots, which really could be meaningful given how good the Thunder are, how good the Pelicans can be, uh, and how good the Pacers could uh, that's be the one with I'm Paul pot- George coming back. I'm potentially most interested in that because with how well they're playing currently, plus how badly Miami, Charlotte, Boston, and Brooklyn are all playing, I feel like they're not locked in, of course, but assuming they get PG back at some point and he plays well, th- we're looking at uh, they're going to get the seven. And right now it looks very much like Cleveland is going to get the two. And we could see LeBron have to deal with Paul George in the first round right away, which I I think would be really interesting. I don't think that Indiana could beat them. I don't think they quite have the firepower to do it, but they could make it way harder than I think Cleveland would have hoped things would be if they got the two seed this year. Yeah, I mean, we we saw some of that last season when those two teams played, and and it was an intriguing match. It was Miami last season. Oh, sorry, yes. But, I mean, LeBron's team, (laughs) LeBron's teams, yes. Thank you. And now the thing about this one that I think does make it a 
little different, although Miami went small all the time, but the, it's the Kevin Love factor, which he hasn't been awesome or anything like that, but he's still Kevin Love. And to make a David West chase him around on the perimeter all the time, plus a, a center in Mozgov who can actually deal with Roy Hibbert, sort of, or most of the time, is I think that'd be a pretty big deal for them. And I think it would actually maybe make this Cleveland team a little better suited because the the Indiana's best possible matchup basically for an elite team was Miami. They were the they were the counter to what Miami did, you know. Whereas I don't think they'll necessarily have quite that level of a conceptual advantage this time around, if you will. I don't know if you'd agree. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense just based on the extra talent that Cleveland's put together on this roster. Yeah. I don't know if it's more talent, but the different style of talent that they have um, may present some challenges for the for the Pacers' defense. Uh, I'm curious what you think out of the standings. You know, if, if the playoffs were to start today, what are your favorite matchups here? That one. Obviously, Golden State versus Oklahoma City would be insane in the first round if that <laughs> yeah, was can to you, happen. Can you imagine those two teams playing against each other as a one versus eight team? You know, Golden yeah. State wins; they're on pace to win something like sixty games, and their reward would be playing the Thunder in the first round of the yeah, playoffs. Unbelievable! I mean, that's that's just ridiculous. I don't even know that there. I can say one beyond that that competes with those two. Ma- how fun those two matchups would be if we got to see them. Uh, I also actually do think that if Oklahoma City somehow fell out and New Orleans made it in, they'd be kind of fun to watch against Gold. Just to watch Anthony Davis in the playoffs, basically, yeah, would that's be true. pretty entertaining. Um, I think Memphis-Dallas, which it looks more and more probable to potentially be a series here, I think that could actually be fun, even though Dallas has been kind of crappy lately, because Dallas was kind of crappy lately last year, heading into the playoffs <laughs> as well, and then all of a sudden they almost beat the, sp- the team that ended up winning the championship in the first round. They took they realistically could have won that series, and I'd, I'm interested to see if Dirk's maybe got one more like renaissance left in him, kind of going yeah. against that, But although it's a terrible matchup for them going against the two big system in Memphis because you like to hide uh, you like to hide Dirk against the weaker big who can't post up but there isn't one of those in Memphis so you kind of can't hide him necessarily on defense Um, at this point I really want to see Golden State Oklahoma City but almost any western matchup is going to be awesome because all these teams are really good it's true I I actually I'm going to name two different other ones Um, Portland and Clippers as of today would play I think that would be a phenomenal series I think Portland could play spoilers to the Clippers again this season like they did with the Rockets last year Mm -hmm. Um, Portland's a very good team even without Wesley Matthews and and then on the in the Eastern Conference Toronto and Washington again teams with two stellar point guards haven't been playing very well as of late but if they do put it together you could see a really fun match up there with John Wall versus uh, Kyle Lowry. I did see something recently yesterday. I think it was Matt Moore, uh, Hardwood Paroxysm, who was kind of breaking down the remaining schedules for all those teams in the East. Mm-hmm. Toronto's schedule is like so much easier than yeah, anybody they... else's. So there's a legit chance they move up past Chicago and get the three, maybe even the two if Cleveland falls yeah. back a little, which doesn't look likely at this point, but it's possible. Yeah, I mean, that would be an interesting scenario. I mean, right now Cleveland is at ten and a half games behind the amazing Atlanta Hawks. Uh, Chicago one and a half games behind them. Toronto two games behind Cleveland. So that there is a lot of play there. You could see Toronto making that leap. Real quick before we head to the break, if you're Cleveland, would you be that upset 
about falling down to the two if it meant you or falling down to the three, excuse me, if it meant you didn't have to see Indiana in the first round. Or, I mean, Milwaukee is a team that could give them some defensive problems as well. Would you see it almost as a sixes type thing where you'd rather have the higher seeds so you could play the next round at home? No, I think I think I'd rather play Milwaukee first. Um, and be, because I'm not sure that that Chicago matchup actually scares them either. Yeah, could I mean could uh, we or see... Toronto? I mean, I, I think they should expect to beat both of those teams. To me, honestly, maybe the Pacers with Paul George are scarier than the Chicago Bulls or the Toronto Raptors right now could, for could, Cleveland. Could see a stealth tank job from the from <laughs> Cleveland to drop out of the two seed. We'll watch for it. All right. Well, as uh, we got to go to a break, but on the next segment, we're going to continue the around the NBA talk. Lots to talk about with injuries, with potential rule changes, with uh, with teams playing well, teams not playing well. Lots going on in the association right now. So we'll talk about that next on the Salt City Hoop Show, ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops Show. So we're watching this Oklahoma City-Golden State game, laughing at some Mark Jackson quotes, of course, because, well, the man is is whatever the opposite of a legend is in here in Salt Lake City. Pretty much, yeah. Um, <laughs> He's one guy you can boo. I won't be mad if you boo Mark Jackson. All right, fair. I like it. Um, Thunder currently down 17 to the Clippers on ESPN right now. Five minutes left in that game, 110-93. Uh, you know, Kendra's playing well, but then again, maybe the defense hasn't been so great with the Clippers scoring 110 with five and a half minutes left to go. Perhaps not. Yeah, apparently we don't have the sound on, which is great because we don't have to listen to Mark Jackson the whole game, which is awesome. But apparently <laughs> before the break, he just said, you think you can block this? No, you canter. As they went to break, which is, uh, we've got to get that as like a sound clip for the right. The John man play. brings he, the puns. Yeah. If he, we, yeah. Down. Mama, there goes that man. That's, <laughs> oh, it's, it's awful. Like, that's one of the worst I've ever heard. But at the same time, it's so uh. bad that I kind of want to hear it as frequently as possible. If that's, <laughs> if that's what he actually said. I'm like most of a, the things that you get that you play over and over again, like my mistaken quotes on the show, you, you'd like to play. Yeah. Anyway, let's go to around the NBA. There's a, there's a bunch going on in the association this this week. Um Let's start off with a little bit of fun. LeBron did not wear a headband for the first time in the NBA last last night. Major culture shock for me. As we, as people who are regular listeners or readers know, I'm kind of uh, unhealthily obsessed with LeBron James as a basketball player. He's <laughs> part of what got me so into basketball in the first place. Been my favorite athlete in the world for well over a decade. And he's, I've never watched him play start a game, at least, without the headband on and uh, i don't know i has anybody said why I'm, i like, mean it works right like yeah, they won by what was it 27 crushed them i watched that game today because we were uh, we were at the jazz game last night but right. i was i watched it today they was that was a massacre they, and they were behind after the first quarter and then after that it was just everything ended from there lebron and yeah he was awesome i don't did it have you seen did anybody list i did, or did he just kind of i mean you do what it takes to win I don't know. Jordan, no, Jordan, I don't, I don't Jordan know went to the four five. He's going to and okay. LeBron's going to the no headband. I, I like it. Um, let, let's talk about the D League rule changes, and I think this is interesting. There are a bunch of rule changes that the D League has put in this season. Some that they're considering for next season, and then some that people would like to see even more that that could happen to change the NBA's minor league. So, first of all, um, for the NBA, they, they've put in these rules where they you can advance the ball as if you were calling a timeout at the end of games without actually having to call a timeout. So that way, it kind of speeds the end of games up, makes the end of them more interesting to watch. But, you know, instead of waiting 
waiting two minutes so you can move the ball to half court. Now all of a sudden you can do so kind of for free, if you will. Yeah. Keeps the games more exciting. That one apparently is pretty likely to be instituted next year. Do you know, is it going to be like you only have one of those? or so? Or yeah, you have you'll have a certain amount of them. You, know, okay, you, you won't be able to do just do it infinitely because, you know, that's, I don't know, that's not stupid. that cool. No, right. that would, teams would just do it every play, all game. They've yeah. also instituted a coach's challenge this year, which I think is interesting, where, you know, if a, if a coach doesn't like a call, they can challenge it on the floor. That one's been less you know, universally accepted as a successful, but it is something that they're looking at. I think that one's going to be a multi-year process because yeah. it would be a big change for the league. Uh, they've started to use headsets for the referees in a couple games here and there to, so that the way the referees can communicate without necessarily huddling in the middle of the floor. I think it might be good go for out-of-bounds calls, might be good for replays. Um, they don't... I mean, I guess explain that. How do they go to together? Point, now, I'm... A, I'm Unless the headsets are only meant to be for the three referees on the floor at any one time, I would think you would be able to have somebody in a booth who's watching be in on that call as well or, or on the headset as well. And if uh, not for a coach's challenge necessarily, so I excuse me, I misspoke there, but in terms of a, an end of game play, the final two minutes, there's been a lot of talk about expanding the review from not just possession but to also review fouls or non-called fouls also and near the end of a game. If you had somebody on a headset that was sitting there and could watch one replay five seconds after the play happened and said, yep, you guys need to review that play, almost like the NFL does with the buzzer that they've got that the, for the head referee that gets buzzed, right. and then they'll blow the play down. I think that could really help be able to institute some of that without slowing the game down so much that you're ruining stuff, you know? Agreed. Um, they're also using some player tracking devices, and I thought it was interesting. You uh, were in the locker room on Saturday and saw some of these player tracking use devices being used on jazz players this season. Yeah, it was a little different type of a thing. It was when you were at Sloan uh, last weekend when they played Milwaukee, and uh, there was a, a guy walking around the dressing room with these little sort of like stick-on Type almost like a large Band-Aid or that type of a thing. And he was putting one on, on Gordon Hayward, and we were waiting for that to be done before we went over to talk to Gordon, just myself and John Oglesby and I think one other person. And so I asked right as we went over, I said, hey, what are those? Is that I asked him if it was a, a heart monitor because that was right. they were putting it kind of up near the left side of the chest sort of. And he told me, no, it's actually a, like a recovery thing to track rest and recovery, how well guys are sleeping. Uh, the, the guy who was handing them out was syncing them up with guys' phones. Which was, which was, yeah, I thought it was kind of an interesting that the Jazz are kind of taking a foray into that, which is, I also think it's great because I think that that's a potential mine of information. Other possibilities that uh, the D League is considering instituting for future seasons in, as the fourth referee rather than having three referees on the floor, having four, so you've got more referees with better angles to call a play. On the other hand, that might mean more fouls. Uh, you could also see a decrease in the number of free throws. I, you would take one free throw for that would be worth two points points that's very interesting i think basically that i mean you'd see the same number of uh, amount of scoring right it'd just be kind of more there'd be more variance in Mm -hmm. that um you know whether or not you make two points or zero points it's up to one shot rather than two uh that's something we could see in summer leagues maybe even as soon as this season especially if the jazz were to bring the rocky mountain review back to salt lake city this offseason which would be awesome please do it i want to go yeah, no, I, having a summer league in Salt Lake was and would be the best thing ever. Um, and then Arn Tellum, who's a major sports agent in, in the NBA, uh, 
had a piece on Grantland today arguing for a greater role of the D-League in, in player development. Right now, a lot of the player development happens at the NCAA level. He feels that should happen instead at the D-League level, and there should be many different uh, changes at the D-League level in order to promote that. So m- paying more than the D-League currently does, they pay minimum wage in a lot of cases to a lot of their players. Uh, removing the age limit so that way uh, teams who players... 18 or younger could play in the D-League as well. Uh, changing the draft declaration times. That one actually might have the most bipartisan support is so that both international players and local collegiate players uh, declare for the draft at the same time. I, I think those are some big changes, but they would all, I think, help the level of basketball that we see in the NBA. Absolutely, and you look at a couple of other major sports leagues in the MLB and the NHL. Both of them have... The NHL is actually right now improving their farm their farm system. They're now making it so ev- all 30 teams have one specific team at the level right below the NHL that they feed into specifically. MLB has done this for a long time. Theirs is excellent. They have double A, triple A, single A, all that, you know. And those you see guys that can be built up that way and that how it's really beneficial to those teams and to those guys where they're not put into a situation where either A, they're rushing themselves into trying to play pro before they're ready to do it, or B, they're maybe sticking around in college longer than they should and not getting the experience they need there. I think it'd be a a good middle ground. Agreed. Uh, Really quick, teams that are playing really well, uh, or teams and players that are playing really well, the San Antonio Spurs have won six straight, and and Tony Parker there, by the way, outscoring opponents by nearly 16 points per game while they're during this streak. Tony Parker has been playing really well, dominant while he's on the floor. They're plus 23 net rating when he's been on the floor. We wrote him off as as maybe a player who is seeing the effects of age, and, and then the Spurs off a little bit earlier in the season as well, and now they're coming back just like we, we should have expected. I, we say we loosely because I'm, <laughs> I did not do that because I know the perils of doing that from Fair. like 2011 when I was doing that, and then they were awesome still. There's, we can't write these guys off. Okay, some, some NBA circles yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. And then Russell Westbrook has been phenomenal. I mean, triple-double in five of his last six games. His last ten, he's been averaging 33 points, 11 assists per game, 10 rebounds per game, 1.8 steals, uh, 12 free throws per game, using over 40% of, of Oklahoma City's possessions. Like, he is their team right now, but he's doing things really that no NBA player has done ever. As far as the level of his I mean, we're looking at him tonight with about three minutes left. He's got 24, 9, and 7 with two steals. He does have 10 turnovers, which is kind of insane but well, you know. it, and that's just, this is like this is like the worst game that he's played <laughs> in a little while and yeah he's, I guess maybe he'll get a quadruple double if we can include uh, turnovers in it but yeah. I, I saw somebody quote a stat recently and this was I believe an estimate it may have been Seth Partnow I believe that was quoting it that we've had on the show before saying that Russ was involved at least in some way in 80% of OKC's scoring or turnover plays in the last 10 games. Wow. Insane. Yeah, I mean, that, that it's crazy. That's, again, like, he changes the game for that team more than any other player mm-hmm. does for any other team in the league. On the downside of that, Wesley Matthews last week had an Achilles tear. He's out for the season, plus the beginning of next season. Huge, huge blow for the Portland Trailblazers. Yeah, nothing you can more say. Nothing you, wow. It's, un- <laughs> it's really unfortunate. It really is. Like, I, I that's the injury that this season has hurt me the most. I just yeah, like made me just uh bummer because I was excited to see the full strength Blazers um take on the West this year and he does so much for that team. Yeah. And finally, as always, except for last week when we lost to them, it's time for LOL Lakers. 
So we actually struggled a little bit with LOL Lakers, but then, good news, the Lakers were officially eliminated from the playoffs for the, I don't know how many times it's been, but it's the earliest they've ever been eliminated from the playoffs since moving to Los Angeles in the 1960-61 season. So that's 50 years. This is the worst Lakers season in 50 years, I I think is the best way to put it. That's pretty fun. Yeah, Kobe announced that he is definitely not retiring next year. I think we all knew that anyway, but he pretty much confirmed it for us, so there's that also. So that means they won't be good next year. Yeah, which is awesome. (laughs) But sure, Kevin Love will totally go there if the Cavs don't make the finals, right, Bill? Uh. Anyway, uh, also, as far as the standings go, they are now essentially locked into the fourth worst spot. There are... It would have to be some pretty extenuating circumstances for them to finish anywhere worse or better than that. So what that means is they have roughly a 17% chance of losing their pick this year, which for that to happen, essentially they would have to drop two spots. Two teams behind them would have to jump into the top three. Maybe the Jazz? Maybe the Jazz. (laughs) That would be, oh gosh, that would be so awesome if the Jazz and one other team jumped them and they gave the sixth pick to Philadelphia this year. Oh, that'd be so awesome. I'm I'm very happy. That would, you know, just make me excited. Yeah, that would be really great. Um, and yeah, there's a 17% chance that they drop down that far if, if they and then lose their pick to the Sixers. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I just I'm that's what I'm hoping for. That's all I can say. I it's a one in six is. chance. Yeah. Absolutely. Roll the dice. If you get a six, that's what's happening with the Lakers. Nice. Nah. All right. Well, that's our LOL Lakers segment for this week. Thanks again for joining us on the show. Um, of, on the LOL Lakers show. We still got one more segment left. Don't worry. Yeah. Let's go ahead and cut to that segment. We'll talk about the Jazz's next week's schedule and wrap it up next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. Talking hoops and the association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show. Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett on the other side. You can always tweet us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. I mean, I know the show is almost over, but you know. We're here for the rest of the week, too. I respond to tweets all the time. Yeah. Even at ludicrous hours in the morning. <laughs> not, I mean, not like the 8 to 10 part of the morning. Then you're sleeping in, but like the midnight to yeah, 2.30 a.m. That morning. I'm on the, I'm on the journalist, the, the basketball schedule. That's the one I'm on. I like yeah. it. No, that's, that's the smart way to be. Which works really well because I'm about to have a bunch of 8 a.m. shifts on the weekends, at KSL, <laughs> which is just going to be great. Lovely. Well, I, I think whoever decided that the NBA would play like it did tonight was also not on a lot of sleep. How about that for a segue? That's a good one. Um, I like it. The Hawks are losing by 30 to the Denver Nuggets, who we eviscerated earlier in the show for being a team completely lacking heart. And, you know, they're up 30 against the Atlanta Hawks. How? The way they've played since the firing is a massive condemnation of Brian Shaw as a coach. Is it a is it a condemnation of Brian Shaw, or is it the players for turning off? Okay, both. Both. Definitely Cause, both. Because when the going gets tough and you just completely turn off and, you know, do your one, two, three, six weeks. Yeah. That's, I don't know. Yeah, and the that's funny thing great. about tonight is that the Hawks played everybody. When I saw that score, I assumed, like, maybe they sat a couple guys or something because these games <laughs> basically don't matter to them anymore. That's because true. They're already up 10 in the East. their seat. Although, <laughs> excuse me, you'd have to assume... They care about if they make the finals what their seed would be, so they probably whether they'd play at home or not. That's so true, I guess. Yeah, so they still got a lot to play for. Yeah, which is why it's funny that they're losing by 30. <laughs> but it's not only even that game. Like, the Celtics beat the Grizzlies by three. Um, the Celtics are a good team, and maybe by the transitive property of the Jazz, remember the Celtics beat the Jazz, yep. and then the Jazz beat the Grizzlies, maybe that result makes sense. Yep. But then the 76ers took the Bulls to overtime, although the Bulls did win it in overtime, 104-95. Uh, 
it's just a weird time in the NBA. And then, I mean, maybe this result isn't that surprising that Oklahoma City ended up losing by 12 to the Clippers. Um, but, I mean, it's just a lot of weird things are going on tonight, especially that Hawks-Nuggets result. That's that's the excla- I, exclamation point. Yeah, I think that one pretty much outweighs the weirdness of all the other <laughs> stuff, and the, just especially how much the, the, the gap specifically. Fair. Well, we've got uh, a busy schedule for the Jazz coming up. All of the next four games are at home. This is the middle of a five-game homestand for the Jazz. Um, the hardest one, definitely, is against the Houston Rockets tomorrow night. 43-20 uh, and 20 Houston Rockets. But given how the Jazz have defended right now, and I think their defense matches up well with how Houston plays. Um, Houston's actually playing right now, so they'll be on a back-to-back. I, I, I think that's a game that the Jazz really could win. Yeah, second straight, actually, where the Jazz will get a team on a back-to-back at home when the Jazz are not on a back-to-back, which is kind of interesting. Which, is nice. <laughs> which doesn't happen all that often. And I, I do think if Hayward doesn't play, though, that's true. that there's just not going to be enough there offense. I do think they Hayward can defend- is questionable, by the way, with yeah. the lower back strain. Th- same thing that kept him out of uh, Tuesday's game last yeah. night. Yeah, I think they can defend this team, like I th- especially if Elijah Millsap can stay out of foul trouble and stay on Harden for a lot of the game, which is, I think, I assume what Quinn Snyder will do. If they can do that, I think they can defend this team, but if Gordon's not there, the thing that we forget about Houston is they're a top-five defense in the league. They're very good defensively, and the Jazz had trouble scoring against one of the worst defenses in the league last night. That's true. And if they have, if with if Gordon Hayward is out, I think they're going to be able to key in on what the they're definitely not going to let Derek Favors go nuts on them in the post for the entire game. They're going to figure out stuff to <laughs> to combat that. Like yeah. it'll be tough if Gordon's not in there. I hope he plays though because I'm interested to see what. The, but at the same time, don't rush him. There's no reason to do that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think that Houston is the hardest game coming up. So maybe if you. Have him play for this Houston game, then rest him versus Detroit or Charlotte. Maybe, I, I don't know, that allows you to see more of what this team is all about. I, I, yeah. I don't know. Could be. Uh, by the way, right now he's playing with their old school McDonald's colors jersey, which... Um, Makes me hungry. <laughs> it's that, that classic burger red and yellow. Um, how about the Jazz's next game, as I mentioned, against Detroit on Saturday? Uh, Detroit's an interesting team. They're actually the only team in the league that has lost two games to all of the Philadelphia 76ers, the Boston Celtics, and the Los Angeles Lakers. And remember, they only played the Lakers and Timberwolves twice. That's that's kind of ridiculous. And they've also beaten some good teams as well, if yeah. I remember correctly. Um, y- you would hope that if the Jazz can play like they have recently, that that should be a win, whether or not Hayward's in the lineup. You, I, w- I would hope at least. Yeah. Like I'm, I, Jennings isn't back yet, right? And he, the, and he's done. Is he done? For yeah, the he's year? done for the year. Okay, so they they got no Jennings, but I, I mean, they're a team that functions primarily with their front court, and at this point, I'd take the Jazz's front court versus almost anyone. So you, including hope that, the Pistons. Yeah, I, I think so. So I think you'd you'd hope that they can if they can neutralize the Pistons there. You'd think that they're especially if Hayward plays that their wing rotation is a lot better than what the Pistons are running out currently. Agreed. And, oh yeah, sorry. I oh, agreed no, on that. Okay. Um, let's talk about Charlotte as well. So the Big Al and the Charlotte Hornets return to to Utah with a twenty eight and thirty four record as of right now. Jazz are twenty seven and thirty six. So those are two evenly matched record teams at least. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting. Big Al versus Rudy Gobert if if 
the Jazz choose to defend him that way. That should be fun. And Campbell Walker just returned tonight for Charlotte, actually, after a missing 18 games. So he'll be back and probably on less of a minutes restriction by that point. So that'll be interesting to see also. And, yeah, I want to see you – know, all we ever talked about the last time was, was the Cantor and Big Al thing. And now that Cantor's gone, we can actually talk about what's kind of a little <laughs> bit of a better matchup as far as offense versus defense in Jefferson versus a, a potential guy like Gobert. It'd be interesting because Gobert has shut down guys you know, who have that jump shot, have that length. But yeah. that being said, there's no one better in the leaks and, and that sort of thing. Uh, some trickery to score in the post yeah, than Al it, Jefferson. It'll be fun to watch. Um, and then the Washington Wizards at home against the Jazz wrap up the home stretch um, versus the Utah Jazz. They, they're a good team, uh, but again, haven't been playing well as late of late. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of it is going to depend there on. The, the, I saw some numbers that they're when they have all three of their main guys, that being John Wall, Brad Beal, and uh, Paul Pierce. They're they're legitimate. They outscore teams by a good clip per possession, things like that. But when any one of those three is missing, essentially they don't. And a couple and Beal and Pierce have both been kind of banged up on and off. If they have all three, I think that's a an interesting match. It's a home game for the Jazz where they don't have to play a back to back. So it's I would hope that it's it could be a game they could they could maybe have a little bit of success in. And I think it's a that's a later game, isn't it? I'm seeing yeah, it's an eight thirty game as of right now. It was just bumped off of the ESPN schedule. So, so. they bumped it but left it at eight thirty. Correct, as of right now, and and it's probably too soon for them to move it. Okay, our friends Jody and Aaron are really upset <laughs> about that. Like they are n- not happy about that. Yeah, no, it, it's not a good sign. All right, so overall, you think the Jazz go is a is a four and one? I think four and one is possible I mean, unless Hayward misses more than one game of okay. that group. Yeah, I, I think that's the right call. And all of a sudden, then, we're looking at a 31-win team with, you know, what, 14 games left in the season? That's yeah. pretty impressive. Remarkable. All right, well, that's the end of our show. Check us out on SaltCityHoops.com as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to a record. You've been listening to the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700.